This morning, we're up to Daniel chapter 7. As I mentioned earlier, the familiar Sunday school stories are past, and now we move into visions and prophecies and apocalyptic scenes. And Daniel 7 certainly fits the bill for that. Let me read the chapter for us as, as we get into it this morning. One, or depending on how you count, two visions uh, given to Daniel, given to him by God, preserved for us as his very word. Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel... My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. 
So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. May he give us grace this morning to understand it as we come before it. As we do come before it, let's turn to him once again in prayer. Our Lord and our God, indeed we do ask your blessing as we come before your word this morning. Make it clear to us, we ask. Fulfill the promise that you've made, that it goes out and does not return to you empty, but fulfills everything that you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you send it. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes and to open our ears to see and hear what you have for us this morning. Do make your word, we ask, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we may walk according to what it teaches us. This, Father, we ask again in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. As you can see, we're done with the simple stories in Daniel. The lion's den, the statue, the fiery furnace, and others. The good old familiar Sunday school material. Now we're moving into these visions. Prophecies, but as much as anything else, apocalyptic visions. We've talked about apocalypse on Wednesday night as we've been studying the apocalypse, Revelation. That's all the word means, a revelation. But it's a technical term used to mean or point to a special kind of revelation. A revelation about future unfolding events, cataclysmic 
world-changing events up to and including the end times. It's a different kind of literature, and it requires a different kind of interpretation. It's a, it's a kind of literature that's full of images and imagery. Those images have meaning. They reveal truth. We shouldn't ever fear that we're not seeing truth in these images. On the other hand, each image or detail of an image is not necessarily meant to point to something. It's not necessarily meant to be precise. Not necessarily a one-to-one correspondence with things in the the so-called real world. So we have meaning, we have truth, we have things that we can understand, but not necessarily precision of each little detail of the image. So we need to be careful. We need to avoid reading too much into it, but we also need to avoid not reading into it what we should. We have to really be careful to find the author's intent, God's intent, in giving us these images. In this case, to Daniel, to the Israelites, and ultimately to us as well. Now, Daniel 7 is very fitting for the world we live in today. One is people are absolutely fascinated by and caught up in thinking about the end times. We see that in the church. We see it outside the church as well. The other part of it is the, the image that most people have in the world today, very different from, say, about 30 years ago, the attitude people have is very pessimistic. There's great fear about the future, and this has been going on now for some years. You can think back to the Y2K scare, 1999. The world is going to end. People are building bunkers, stocking them with food because all hell is going to break loose because of some stupid little digit in a computer. That didn't happen. But then we had 9-11, 2001, which inaugurated all sorts of fears about terrorism. And quite frankly, if you think about it, since then, for nearly 14 years, we have been at war. We've been in a state of warfare for quite a long time. That causes angst. That causes no little anxiety. We had the Mayan calendar and the 2012 scare. The world is going to end because they ran out of rock in Mexico a thousand years ago. We've got rogue nations pursuing and gaining access to and control of atomic weapons, the nuclear bomb. But we see it even in the culture. What's become so popular now among young people just baffles me these dystopian movies and books, The Hunger Games, the Divergent series, and others like them. We see it in this crazy obsession with the so-called coming zombie apocalypse. They took our word. (laughs) There's fear out there, and it's very pessimistic fear. Things are happening, and they're not good. What in the world are we going to do? Look to Daniel 7. It gives us an answer. For me, the heart and soul of of Daniel 7 and the message of this chapter, the very foundation of it, is spiritual warfare. This is a chapter about spiritual warfare more than anything else. I want to cover that as, as the first point this morning. We also see in this chapter what we've seen throughout Daniel and will see throughout Daniel 
another confirmation of the sovereignty of God. Our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. But we also see, and that's the third thing I want to cover this morning, uh, the ultimate victory, the ultimate triumph of the Son of Man, of Christ, and of His people. All right, so let's start with the spiritual warfare aspect of things. Just a quick review of, of the chapter. Daniel is given this dream, this vision of four beasts rising out of this roiling sea, the four winds of the earth coming and stirring up the great sea. And the vision then shifts after he sees the beast to, the, to a throne room and one called the Ancient of Days who sits in judgment over all that's going on. And then entering into that throne room on the clouds of heaven is one like the Son of Man who's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom over all peoples, nations, and languages. That list should be familiar to us from early chapters in Daniel. The kingdom lasts forever. It's never destroyed. Daniel is troubled, very anxious, asked for an explanation of this vision that he's seen. And he's told, the four beasts are four kingdoms. The saints of the Most High, though, will receive a kingdom and possess it forever. Then he asks even more, well, what about this terrifying fourth beast that's so different from the others, this horn that rises up and talks and boasts and regales? And he receives an explanation of that and further confirmation of the ultimate victory of the saints of the Most High. That's basically what's going on in this chapter. And the temptation is, let's go right to the interpretation. That's the danger with all apocalyptic literature. Let's go right to the interpretation and figure out what these four beasts and four kingdoms are. Let's obsess over that. Well, I'm going to skip over it really quickly. It's simple. It's the same kingdoms as Daniel chapter 2. Whatever you believe the kingdoms are in chapter 2, you're going to believe about the kingdoms here in Daniel 7. It's either Babylonia, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, and then Rome, or you take out Rome, divide the Medes and Persians in two, and you've got the fourth kingdom as Alexander's Greece. I think it's the former. I think there's good reason to believe that. I don't think the, the Greeks as the fourth kingdom works very well. It's Babylon, the Medes and Persians as a combined empire, the Greeks... Alexander succeeded by four generals, the four heads, the four wings, and then the Roman Empire. Okay, that's great. And, and that's a common accepted interpretation, and it's, I think it's very true and very accurate. And we'll get to that in a little bit more. But what does that really tell you to know that? Quite frankly, not much. It tells Daniel what's about to come in a figurative sense. It tells us what happened in a historical sense, but what what does that tell us really about Daniel 7? It doesn't help that the fourth beast, Rome, doesn't make much sense in terms of a real-world application. There's too many details in there that don't fit quite right. Who are those ten kings? Who's the one who comes up after them and gets rid of three of them? How did he try to change the times and the law? How and when were the saints given into his hand for a time and times and half a time? And what does a time and times and half a time mean? 
how was or how is or how will be his kingdom be taken away and given to the saints? Jumping to the interpretation just opens up a whole bunch of questions that, quite frankly, I think it's just about impossible to answer. I haven't seen a good answer. Nothing really fits. Nothing really makes sense. So I want to return to this idea of the chapter as being about spiritual warfare. And it gives us clues inside it that help us to know that this is what it's about. The first clue is, is the first thing we see in Daniel's vision. The first element of his vision is the four winds of the earth coming from all four corners of the earth and stirring up the great sea into a roiling, boiling mass. These four beasts emerge from the sea. Now this image, we can stop right there, this image is an incredibly common image for the people of Daniel's time. It's part of their view of of the conflict, the cosmic conflict among the gods. Part of the mythology of these cultures, very familiar. Whether it's Baal or Marduk or some other god who must come and calm the god or goddess of the sea and contain them so that the earth is not embroiled in disaster. It's very common to these cultures. The sea is seen as a place of dangerous monsters. The sea and those monsters must be tamed, must be controlled. There's a biblical connection as well. I think part of the the reason these cultures had this mythology rise up is because of the flood. In, In the memory of pagan, ungodly people, the flood is a disaster. Let that never happen again. Let's control that. So there's, I think, a a faint memory of that in in pagan myth. But we also read about Leviathan, the great beast. We read about the, the greatness of the sea. The mysteries of the sea. So there's one clue that this is kind of a divine spiritual warfare environment. Then if you look at verse 9 and following, we have the divine throne room. Further evidence that the context of the vision is a divine one, not an earthly one. This is God's throne room. He is the ancient of days, as we sing, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. His white hair, his woolen hair, indicate his holiness, as does the purging and purifying fire of his throne and its wheels and the the stream of fire that comes out before the throne. He's served by a great multitude, almost innumerable, ten thousands on ten thousands. And he sits in judgment before an open book. This is God's throne room where he judges the world. That's our second clue. This is a spiritual thing going on more than an earthly one. Then in Verse 13 and following, we have one like the Son of Man. Son of Man is a messianic term. Jesus used it repeatedly about himself in the Gospels. The Son of Man this, the Son of Man that. One like the Son of Man is ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days, coming on the very clouds of heaven. That cloud image frequently used in Scripture of God in his presence, whether it's the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites the cloud that surrounded Sinai as God gave Moses the law, 
in the Psalms repeatedly to describe God. You might have seen it in Psalm 104 earlier this morning. The Mount of Transfiguration with Christ surrounded by a cloud. Christ's ascension into heaven on a cloud and his promise to return on a cloud. This is a spiritual setting. And then the fourth clue is is in the description of the beasts themselves. They're not earthly beasts. Nothing like this exists in God's creation. They're bizarre. They're fantastical. They're verging on demonic, to be quite honest. The first is this weird lion-eagle combination that loses its wings and then becomes a man. Then you've got a bear hunched up on one side, so hungry that it comes with its last meal in its mouth and it is told to go and devour even more. Then a leopard with four wings, almost dragonfly-like, and four heads. And then the fourth beast, which is indescribable. doesn't even compare it to any kind of an animal. It just says it has teeth of iron and claws of bronze, tramples and devours wherever it goes, ten horns and bizarre, strange imagery. These are imaginary beings, and they're meant to draw us away from earth into the, the spiritual realm where the spiritual battle rages between God and his enemies. That's what's really going on here. The beasts are the enemies of God. And he sits in judgment over them and over their kingdoms. The vision given to Daniel is one of these kingdoms rising out of the tumult of the sea, a sea of rebellion, according to the ancient myths. Monstrous beasts, but God, the Ancient of Days, sits in judgment with an open book. He kills the fourth beast, the most terrifying one. He lets the others live. That's a bizarre... Fit that into your four kingdoms, because Rome was last. (laughs) In any case, the beasts are defeated, and he gives the kingdom to his own son, the Son of Man, and gives him all peoples, nations, and languages. And this is a kingdom that has dominion everywhere, and it's a kingdom that lasts forever. That's the basic message of this chapter. Kingdoms will rise up. Enemies of God will rise up in rebellion. Enemies of God will rise up in opposition to his people. But the Ancient of Days sits in judgment. The Ancient of Days has set his king on his holy hill. The Ancient of Days has given the kingdom to his son, and it is an everlasting kingdom. There is great spiritual conflict going on, but God in his son is victorious. So there you have it, the sovereignty of God, the second thing that we are reminded of in this passage. Though the beasts rise up in rebellion, he sits enthroned and judges all, takes away their dominion, kills the fourth. This is comfort for Daniel as he sits in exile in Babylon. It's a comfort for the Israelites to know that they, his people, are being watched over by their God. And it's a comfort for us, his people today. Whatever is going on around us, never lose sight of the fact 
our God sits enthroned and judges. And a kingdom has been given to the Son and to us as well. Now there is a reality to the beast. I don't want to ignore that. The first beast is Babylon. But what, did, what happened to Babylon? It rose and fell. The second beast is the Medes and Persians. What happened to them? Rose and fell. Alexander and his four generals rose and fell. Rome, the eternal kingdom, rose and fell. This is all in the future for Daniel and his countrymen, and so we can see why it might perplex him and give him some anxiety. But we see it as reality. We see it, in fact, as ancient history. As powerful and as terrible as those nations were and could be, their lives were short compared to the ancient of days. Their lives are short compared to history. They rise, they fall, but the ancient of days remains enthroned. And I don't think that's only historical. There are clues that this extends beyond the history of those four kingdoms. We've got four winds coming from the four corners of the earth, stirring up the great sea. All of the earth is included. The second thing is the number four is kind of an inclusive number. Another indication or symbol of the completeness of things, the four creatures in Revelation. Four Gospels. Four is a common, common number in Scripture. So in a sense, the four kingdoms, or the four beasts and the, and the kingdoms, are just stand-ins for all the kingdoms all through the earth, all throughout time, that rise up and stand in opposition to God. Real kingdoms, but symbols, stand-ins, for every kingdom that looks like them. It could be nations. You can think of Napoleon. There's a guy who tried to change laws and, and times. The USSR, Nazi Germany, Communist China. Or it could be types of kingdoms. The papacy, Islam, false religions, false ideas like humanism. We see these kingdoms rise, but we also see them fall. How many of us who were alive in the 70s thought the Soviet Union would ever disappear? Where is it? As one of our presidents put it, it's on the ash heap of history. They may rise, but they fall. Our God sits in judgment with his books open. He knows everything. He's in control. Ultimately, these rebellious powers are always brought to destruction. They may reign, they may have power for a time, or times, or half a time, but their time is limited and it will end. And I think really that phrase, time, times, and half a time, is, is not meant to be three and a half. Times is just plural for time, it's not double. <laughs> So I think it just stands for either a, a period of time, maybe even a long period of time, that's the times, or maybe a half a time, a short time. But their time is limited from God's perspective. And so we as God's people should never give in to despair or pessimism about the world around us. Let the world get excited about zombie apocalypses. 
Let the world get all caught up in dystopian novels and movies. Let the world worry and fret itself. We have the answer. We have a God who rules and reigns. And they can be a part of that kingdom through repentance and faith in Christ. Our God reigns. He does judge. He will judge. His opponents and our opponents will be defeated. Their reign is temporary and their power is limited. The words of Jesus in Matthew 10 are apt. Do not fear those who can destroy the body. Fear the one who can destroy the body and soul in hell. Repent. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. That's the answer. That's what people should be fearing. Turn to Christ. And so we come to the third point that I wanted to get to this morning, the reigning Son of Man. This is the one through whom God achieves His victory. The Son of Man, the Messiah. Verse 14 says that He has given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom shall not be destroyed. Is there anything left out of that? That's all-encompassing. That's the whole world. That's everything. Not a nation, not a kingdom, not a language, not a time. It shall not end. It shall never be destroyed. The beasts rise up. But the saints of the Most High shall receive that kingdom and possess it forever, forever and ever, says verse 17. The saints will be oppressed. War will be made upon them by the fourth beast or those like it throughout history. We see that in verses 21 and 22 and 25. There will be oppression. There will be war. We're the target because of who we serve. But, verses 22 and 27 tell us that the beast is defeated and dominion given to the saints. So that fourth beast in particular, the one that Daniel is so troubled about, the one that's so bizarre and strange and terrible in his vision, that's the oppressor of the saints. There might be other nations or kingdoms that subdue and rule over the saints. Babylonia did. Persia did. The Greeks did. But Rome in particular persecuted God's people. First the Jews and then the Christians. This is what the fourth beast does. Again, the details are not so important in particular as what they tell us in general. And here again, the the ten horns, the ten kings. Ten is a number in Scripture. We have to be careful. But it's a number that may just mean a lot. We see in this passage as well, the the thousands upon thousands and the 10,000 times 10,000. 10 times 10 times 10 times 10. It's a number that means a lot. And so, as one commentator put it, this is about Rome. But Rome is 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 a nation we know that was ruled through multiple governors and municipalities and territories and whatnot. 10 is just saying that's what Rome looks like. The number 10 then may simply be telling us that there are a lot of 
rulers, a lot of kings, and out of them one rises and puts down the others and gains a certain amount of power and boasts loudly against the Most High and his people. That certainly fits Julius Caesar, part of a ruling group of three, got rid of the other two, but it fits the claims of supremacy by the Pope as well, or the Holy Roman Empire, or again, Napoleon, Lenin, who got rid of his buddies, Hitler, Mao, all those who have repressed, made war upon God's people. And so the horn that rises up may simply be an image for Antichrist, both actual, physical, personal Antichrist, or just the spirit of Antichrist, as the New Testament puts it. He does boast and rebel against God. That makes him anti-God and anti-Christ in verses 11 and 12. If, if that horn is a symbol for or an image of Antichrist, we know that they arise, and various ones do arise. We're, first John tells us this. 1 John 2.18, 1 John 2.22, 1 John 4.3, 2 John 1.7. There is the Antichrist coming, but along the way there may be others that rise up and cause trouble until that final battle and that final victory. So here Rome is a stand-in for a reality that continues until Christ's final victory. But what do we know about this terrifying, terrible beast? It cannot prevail. It doesn't win. Alone of the beasts, it's killed and not allowed to live. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will be victorious, and with him all the saints of the Most High. Who are those? Again, all who repent. All who believe and accept Christ as Savior. All who allow Him to rule and reign over their lives so that they may rule and reign with Him for all of eternity. Now here's the good news. That kingdom is already established. It's already underway. It's already taking territory, if you will. For now, it's spiritual territory. Spiritual territory has some from every people, nation, and language hear the good news of salvation and come to faith in Him. For now, this is how the Son of Man is taking dominion and expanding His kingdom. And we, of course, have a role to play in that. To tell others about this great King. To tell others about the destruction that is coming if they don't submit to Him and turn away from their rebellion against Him. Warn others of that destruction as sure as every other enemy that raises itself up against God. Where is Babylon? It's in the dust in the Middle East. Where is Persia? Buried under the sands. Where is Rome? A bunch of ruins. Gone. Where is Greece? Doesn't exist. We can offer to those around us a place in the real kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To come to Christ who came and lived and died and rose to life and ascended to heaven and is coming again for that final victory and that final battle. This is that same Jesus we read about who told parables 
who healed the sick, who forgave sins, who rose dead people to life, and did something that I find very interesting as we look at Daniel 7. We read about it in Mark 4. He spoke, and the roiling, turbulent sea became calm. This is the one who brings victory over the beasts of the world. None of them can destroy us because our Savior calms the sea. Don't ever forget that. This is who we serve. This is our King. Take hope. Take comfort. Be assured. Life can be terrible. Life can be hard. The saints can endure prison. Saints can endure torture. Saints can endure martyrship, martyrdom, because they know that their King rules and reigns. The, the worst they can do is kill our body. But we will rise again and rule and reign with him. Do not fear, says our king. I have overcome the world. He has. And he will. Amen to that. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for Jesus Christ the Son of Man, your Son, who came to be our Savior, who offers salvation to the whole world. We pray that many would come to repentance and faith and that you would be gracious to use us in that great task. We know the harvest field is great, ready to be harvested. Our desire would be to go out into that field and be productive in reaping a great harvest of souls for Christ. Use us for this task, we would ask, according to your good will and according to your good pleasure. Make us always ready with an answer for the hope that lies within us. Father, our only hope is in Christ. And in the meantime, as the world rises up in oppression and rebellion against him, oftentimes taken out through us, give us peace and comfort. Help us to endure. Do not let us falter. Let us not be that seed that rises up but is weakened by the cares of the world or the heat of the sun. May we all be seed planted in good soil and bear fruit in great abundance. This is not possible on our own, but only according to your will and by the power of your Spirit working in and through us. And may that be true. May we see it. May we rejoice in it. Father, we ask it in the precious name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.